Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform out there. And we're excited to share they now offer dedicated virtual droplets. And unlike standard droplets, which use shared virtual CPU threads, their two performance plans, general purpose and CPU optimized, they have dedicated virtual CPU threads. This translates to higher performance and increased consistency during CPU intensive processes. So if you have build boxes, CI, CD, video encoding, machine learning, ad serving, game servers, databases, batch processing, data mining, application servers, or active front end web servers that need to be full duty CPU all day, every day, then check out DigitalOcean's dedicated virtual CPU droplets. Pricing is very competitive starting at 40 bucks a month. Learn more and get started for free with a $100 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. Hey, welcome to the Practical AI podcast. Um, this is going to be another fully connected episode where Daniel and I keep you fully connected with everything that's happening in the AI community. We're going to take some time to discuss the latest AI news, and we're going to dig into some learning resources to help you level up on your machine learning game. Uh, my name is Chris Benson. I'm one of the co-hosts. I am chief strategist for artificial intelligence, high performance computing, and AI ethics at Lockheed Martin. And with me is my co-host, Daniel Whitenack, who is a data scientist with SIL International. How's it going today, Daniel? It's going great. Uh, how about with you, Chris? Going very well. Uh, as we are recording this, I just got back from the LiveWorks Tech Conference in Boston. Uh, had a good time there, gave a talk, and it went well. So uh, I'm a happy camper. Awesome. Yeah, well, things are, things are looking up here uh, as well over the past month or so, it seems like my internet at home kind of has gradually been degrading and I haven't like been able to figure out why I've like updated my computer and done all the restarts of everything, checked all the, all the things. Um, but, uh, had the technician out today, it turns out that, uh, squirrels were eating the cables, uh, coming into my house. So, uh, producing obvious degradation. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm happy that I, that's actually figured out and uh, I have internet, good internet again. There you go. <laughs> Humane removal of squirrels to be considered here. Or uh, reconfiguring the cable positioning to or that. a little bit harder. <laughs> or that. Either one will work. Yeah. Okay. So um, so this, we, we actually have uh, a really, really timely uh, topic right now um, because I we are 
having conversations about this constantly. Um, so today we wanted to talk about deep fakes, and we're kind of going to cover an overview with it. And um, so much is happening uh, in the news right now regarding deep fakes. We'll we'll tell you what we'll tell everyone what they are and and such as that. But um, everywhere I go, whether I was in Boston or we had uh, this past week, we had our monthly Atlanta Deep Learning Meetup. Uh, the topic came up there. It's just kind of coming up everywhere, uh, and it's coming up in the news on a daily basis. So we're going to delve into this topic and and see see what we find. Yeah, and actually, even just this morning, the uh, policy director from OpenAI was testifying uh, before the House Intelligence Committee here in the in the U.S. Um, the topic of that was the national security challenge of artificial intelligence, manipulated media, and deep fakes. So, um, you know, this is reaching the, the highest levels of government and certainly something that people ask about a lot and something that we, um, I think it's it's time that we spend time talking about it on the podcast. So I'm glad, glad you brought up the idea. Yeah, I actually, uh, I saw your tweet uh, about that was going on and tuned in. I was I was too late to catch the beginning of the show uh, of the testimony, but I saw at least the full second half and uh, it was fascinating and um, it was interesting to see how startled uh, the the members of the intelligence committee were receiving this information. I think they already had some insight into it, but um, it was uh, one of the uh, reps uh, who I, whose name I don't have at the top of my head uh, noted that it was it was very scary stuff, and so um, the potential of how it can be used nefariously. And we'll certainly get into that today. So we're going to kind of talk about what deep fakes are, uh, and then get into kind of how they can be used, how they have been used, uh, what can be done to prevent bad actors, that such such thing. And I'll, I'll certainly, I took notes and we'll refer to uh, some of the congressional testimony in this episode. Awesome. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I guess this episode will be kind of a downer. So <laughs> sorry, sorry, folks. In, in, sorry in advance. Um, we'll try to... Uh, at least keep it interesting, even if we are talking about sort of quote unquote dangerous things and, uh, you know, try to, you know, bring some of our thoughts into it, but try to give you a kind of good overview of, of the topic. So maybe one one good way to start is just by defining what a deep fake is. So uh, in my understanding, a deep fake, the deep part really refers to like deep learning models. Um, now, we talk a lot about deep learning on this podcast, so if you want to know more about that, there's certainly a lot of links throughout the podcast about deep learning. But now I guess the question is, for deep fakes, if we're talking about deep learning models faking something, so generating fakes of Media. something, yeah, what are, we, what are we talking about? So what are deep fakes faking, Chris? So deep fakes are where you, and, and I'll, I'll get to a specific example, but that's where you are using deep learning technology, and we'll talk about the specifics in a moment, to change, to either create or change videos that uh, that may be out there. It could also be audio. Uh, it can be any kind of media that people will watch to take in information, whatever that might be, and change those so that what you are seeing and hearing is not actually what really happened with the original unchanged video. Um, and so it, it opens the door for all types of manipulation. Yep. And so that's a that's a start. It's a broad, very broad definition. Yeah. So the uh, some of our regular listeners might remember that I think our last fully connected episode, we kind of did an overview of various advanced sort of methodologies in the AI world. One of those was GANs. 
And in that episode, we talked about how GANs um, or generative adversarial networks are one of the things they can do is generate art or generate images or generate videos or change styling or, or these other sorts of things. So this is one sort of methodology that's applied, a deep learning methodology that's applied to generate certain things. Like you were saying, Chris, I think the thing that people probably think of right away when they think of deep fakes, if they've seen some of these things, is the video thing. So there's there's been some like uh, funny ones or, or satirical ones as well. So I, I was just watching one before the episode where kind of uh, Joker's face was, uh, you know, applied to uh, d- these different videos. Um, there have been ones with like uh, President Obama's face where he's he's dancing and and other things. So it's kind of like, you know, the Joker or President Obama didn't actually act in those videos, but their face is in those videos doing certain things when when they didn't. So I, I think that uh, that's probably what comes to mind. There's, of course, like you said, this isn't only video. Um, so we talked even in the last uh, Fully Connected episode about generating kind of fake people. So pictures of, of fake people. Um, but in this case, probably the deep fake part of it would be faking someone's face with an emotion or an expression or a scene that they were never in or faking someone's voice saying something that they never said, or maybe it's both of those things together, faking someone's voice and in a video saying something they they never said. So replicating someone's voice and mouth movements. Um, But then it also goes beyond kind of the video and imagery into text as well. Of course, there was a lot of focus on OpenAI's GPT-2 model recently Mm -hmm. uh, this this spring, which was capable of producing some like really realistic sort of news kind of articles or or text on certain subjects and that sort of thing. So generating text in a certain style or based on a certain subject or something like that is also something that that should be considered as we're kind of talking through this. Absolutely. And and there have been it's it's been in the media so much recently because there have been several uh, notable things that that I imagine uh, most or all of our listeners are already somewhat familiar with. There was recently a video of uh, the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, where she in, in the video she was speaking. And um, they made her appear kind of, I think the, the most common references were drunk and slurred speech and such as that. And, you know, that was that one thing where it changed the characterization of her uh, having that conversation. Um, and, and that's a big part of it. It's not just changing the words. You can change how people appear to you. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of people believe that video. They, they were like, oh, there's this video of Nancy Pelosi, you know drunk on stage or or whatever, you know, talking. And so uh, that was one. And there was a, a bit of an uproar and Facebook refused to take it down. So uh, earlier this week, there was a video posted uh, on Facebook and other places of Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, saying things that he never said, uh, where they took a, uh, I think it was a 2017 uh, talk of his and changed what he was saying. And so um, I think it was a, you know, I think that was intended somewhat as a look, I told you so, Facebook, you should have taken down the the Pelosi video. as uh, And so, you know, how does it feel? So those are certainly big. And I know in my day job working at Lockheed Martin's, uh, you know, focusing on national security issues, this is certainly something that we talk about uh, because there are all sorts of uses here. And we'll get into some of that those uh, potential use cases, uh, you know, in the world uh, as we go here. 
Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, this kind of has already been around for a while. So uh, Hollywood and movie studios have been doing sort of CGI and uh, video tricks and movie tricks for quite some time that might kind of put someone in a scene that they were, you know, standing on a mountain where they weren't really, or uh, maybe it's like uh, superimposing a face. I'm thinking of the the Star Wars example yep. um, uh, with Princess Leia. So there, there's certainly something that's not new. I think what is new is kind of traditionally or always in the past, these sorts of techniques were pretty much restricted to experts. So it required a lot of effort or quite a lot of time and money to kind of pull off these things convincingly. Um, now with these deep learning networks that have kind of uh, these, these large encoding layers and, and decoding layers, you can have a training data set where you have a bunch of images uh, with, you know, one person's face and output, uh, you know, with the, the other face or, or uh, from, uh, you know, with a certain pose or, or representation of a body and then output with someone in that pose or wh whatever it is. Um, if you have the right training data, now it's just a matter of applying models that are existing to, uh, to that training data. And it really doesn't require a lot of expertise beyond maybe some hours of compute time on AWS or something like that. And in some cases, you can even get pre-trained models. So like mm -hmm. in terms of kind of generating these new looking faces, you know, corresponding to a certain facial expression or something like that. So in this case, maybe the input is a facial expression or something and the output is someone, you know, in that facial expression, you know, that may only take a few a few images to uh, fine tune on if you've already got a, a very good pre-trained model. So it's not even like you have to have a bunch of images of someone to be able to fake them in a certain uh, in a certain position or with a certain facial expression or in a certain scene. So I think the big difference now or what's been the development recently is kind of the ease with which you're able to do these sorts of things. That's true, and and there's there's a whole host of software programs uh, that have uh, come out that are basically kind of dumbing down the process so that you don't have to have a lot of deep learning training. Um, in some cases, you can just install the applications on your system, and they come with you know there's some for Mac and Windows and things like that. Um, some of the really well known ones that people talk about, or there was kind of the original what was called the fake app program, um, an open source version of that. Uh, followed called Deep Face Lab, which I've seen referenced quite a lot, although that has recently uh, closed down uh, and, and because the, the the primary maintainer has moved on, uh, though that person is is encouraging other people to to use the the source and 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 move on and do things with it if they choose. Uh, there's face swap, there's my face, uh, my, I'm sorry, my fake app, uh, which is on Bitbucket. And so there's there's uh, and I, I think you're going to see more and more of these coming about. And in addition to that, obviously, you can use the standard tools. You can use Keras and TensorFlow um, to do the same things with the data as you just alluded to. So it's. It, I think that the key takeaway there is that you know when when it was a Hollywood thing, it was a highly skilled thing that required you know special software things that you would find in a movie studio, but not not everywhere. And uh, and that's changed. It's now something that that any computer savvy person can handle. And, and so I think that's that's what's changed as we hit 2019 is that it's now been democratized.
The Data Engineering Podcast is a weekly deep dive on modern data management with the engineers and entrepreneurs who are shaping the industry. Go behind the scenes on the tools, techniques, and difficulties of data engineering so you can learn and keep up with the knowledge to make you and your business successful. Can you give a bit of an outline about the motivation for choosing Jupyter Notebooks in particular as the core interface for your data teams? Yeah, and actually, uh, when I first joined uh, Netflix, it was sort of tossed at me, and I was definitely like, well, are we crazy? And the answer was like, we might be a little crazy. Go to dataengineeringpodcast.com to listen, subscribe, and share it with your friends and colleagues. All right, Chris. So let's maybe get to the uh, the more I don't know important or depressing or however you want to put it. Part of the part of the story is you know it in some ways it's kind of cool that this technology exists in the sense that you know uh, technology wise and kind of intellectually this is kind of interesting that these techniques can do this with you know with such little data or with such realism. Um, and when you just think about it from that point of view, you know, technology wise, it, it's pretty interesting. But what makes this sort of technology? Why is there so much hype around it? Why are these sorts of methods that produce these deep fakes? Why are they so dangerous? What's, what's your perspective on that? Well, I think there's there's a number of reasons that we can we can kind of work our way through. Um, you know, I, I guess you can start off with the fact that since the data is so available, you can get videos uh, from so many places now um, and with people using uh, their smartphones to take video and, you know, post it out on social media and stuff. It, it's not, you know, historically deep fakes have uh, have really uh, centered on things like celebrities, and you know they would put a celebrity's face on, you know, a pornographic uh, video or uh, take a politician. Um, I saw something on one of the software on one of the deepfake software sites where uh, they were superimposing Nicolas Cage's face on uh, Donald Trump, and you could kind of clearly see it was it was it appeared to be Trump talking, but the facial expressions were clearly Nicolas Cage's and. Those were, you know, kind of goofy, uh, so long as that was as far as you were taking it, um, and they could be a little bit fun, meme-like. But I think that obviously opens the same door for people who are out to to cause harm to others, and and that could be at a lot of different levels. It could be uh, as personal as um, harassing uh, a bad actor, harassing someone they know. You know, if they I'm just making something up, broke up with the girlfriend and they had video of their girlfriend talking and they could, um, they could take that and, you know, take some other bad footage, whatever you want to do and, and put that out there to humiliate them. And I think there have been some, some instances of that. Um, I think you had, you had mentioned that there was one, uh, that the Washington Post had reported. I know when we were talking beforehand. Yeah. So there, there's kind of this, um, I mean, one of the first ways I think this had surfaced and people have used it in this sort of harassing way is is kind of the uh, pornographic uh, use, like you had said before, where, you know, maybe before there were certain people that tried this with celebrities, um, at least kind of leading up until very recently. Now, I think it's it's very real that, you know, if, if someone had this sort of video of of uh, someone they knew, you know, that in their circle of friends or acquaintances, 
um, they could harass them in this way by making, uh, you know, explicit content with that person's face. And, um, you know, it looks so real that uh, if they kind of propagate that, then kind of the harm is done before, you know, it may it may come out or it may never come out that 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 was a fake. Um, so it's it's definitely a concern in terms of how this could affect, you know, uh, real real people's uh, lives. You know, it's funny, I, just as a as it, when you said that about, you know, whether or not people after the fact would learn that uh, that was addressed in the congressional hearing today. It was noted that uh, when one of these videos goes out and goes vi- viral, um, even if it's widely reported that the video was a fake after the fact, it it uh, tends not to hit as many people. And so you inevitably have changed the landscape by the initial post and then, you know, the, the quote fix afterwards doesn't actually completely fix it. And they noted that psychologically, that even if people know it was a fake that they saw, uh, that uh, psychologically they still kind of hold on to some of that bias that was introduced through the fake. Um, so even if I, uh, you know, even if I found out that the picture of President Trump and Nicolas Cage uh, was in fact a deep fake, as it was, uh, in theory, there's the potential for that to influence me in some way, depending on what the the video author was was shooting for. So um, it's a it's an interesting side effect. Yeah. And part of the hype maybe that, that's been generated recently and part of the momentum to discuss these things, I think, has been that shift from, you know, people's thoughts of before thinking that, well, yes, whether it was satirical, like a joke sort of thing, or whether it was actually harassment and, and humiliation, like in terms of the the pornography type of stuff, you know, that was maybe restricted to celebrities and people are thinking, oh, well, those people put themselves out in public. There's a lot of video of them. Um, so they're kind of, you know, asking for, for this sort of thing, which is kind of sad anyway, because no one should have to be subjected to that uh, if they if they don't want it. But now it's like, you think about any video you see, whether it's a video of someone you know on on Facebook or or uh, you know someone that's not a high profile celebrity. Now that there's this potential that even those videos are faked in in some way or another to to influence you, or at least there's the potential of that happening, um, which is kind of a shock when you think about it. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's there's such a widespread application from a very personal level, as we were talking about a moment ago, you know, all the way to large societal concerns. And it is a technology that is kind of fluid enough in its application to where you can scope it however you want. And um, and you're seeing everything from that level all the way up to nation states using it, uh, you know, to to influence others, um, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I think one of the things that I think is, is certainly contributing to it being used this way and in, in such a successful uh, frame is the fact that when your political environment is what we all know it to be, um, and and we are uh, we're very polarized, we're very tribe oriented, and uh, we recognize that um, you know there are messages that are supporting each of those viewpoints. That by itself, before you get to deep fakes, already kind of introduces. In a lot of people's minds, the potential for conspiracy theories and um, and and thinking uh, about others in ways that may not be entirely realistic anyway, regardless of which side you're on. And so, when you throw in the nefarious uh, intent 
that deep fakes can lend themselves to, that just exacerbates that situation. So we, we really have created, not only here in the United States, but in places around the world, an environment where we're very susceptible to this technology being used against us now. Um, and it's certainly something that if we are if we are to navigate safely through this, we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to figure out ways of coping. And, and we'll address some of those in the congressional hearing. Uh, address some of that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah, it is interesting that even the so just the fact that these deep fake videos exist, it creates kind of an excuse, an extra kind of uh, excuse for people that don't want to face the the truth or want to create conspiracy theories. So this has already been seen around around the world. Um, you know, I was I was reading in the there's a great Washington Post article that I'll I'll link in uh, in our show notes, but it was talking about in Malaysia. There's a kind of viral video clip of a man. Um, confessing to uh, to certain things with a local cabinet minister. And um, that's kind of, you know, that questionable stuff is being kind of thrown into, oh, well, that's just a deep fake. Um, and there's similar things in Africa, even, uh, you know, videos of, of leaders who have actually contributed to uh, those videos have contributed and the controversy over those have has contributed to, um, you know, coup attempts and other things where it wasn't even I guess we don't uh, I don't know if it's known in those cases, but even just the questioning of those videos, if they're a deep fake created enough uncertainty that it actually created political and military turmoil. Yeah. And those aren't the only places. It was actually an example very similar to your African one uh, in the testimony uh, before Congress today about that. Um, and so just to go ahead and get to that, there was it was a statement uh, that was prepared uh, for the uh, permanent select committee on intelligence within the U.S. House of Representatives. And the, the person testifying was Clint Watts of the Foreign Policy Re- Research Institution. I'm sorry, Institute. And the title of the brief was The National Security Challenges of Artificial Intelligence, Manipulated Media, media and Deep Fakes. And I read through the uh, the document that was submitted initially that kind of represented their viewpoint in addition to hearing some of the testimony. And it wasn't actually at the top, but there was a paragraph that jumped out. And it's very short, and I'm going to read that really quick because I think it really, it really kind of gets right down to it. It was, deep fake proliferation represents two clear dangers. Over the long term, deliberate development of false synthetic media will target U.S. officials, institutions, and democratic processes with an enduring goal of subverting democracy and demoralizing the American constituency. In the near and short term, circulation of deepfakes may incite physical mobilizations under false pretenses, which you can think of as troops, uh, initiate public safety crises, and spark the outbreak of violence. The recent spate of false uh, conspiracies proliferating via WhatsApp in India offer a relevant example of how bogus messages and media can fuel violence. The spread of deepfake capabilities will likely only increase the frequency and intensity of such violent outbreaks. Now, that was one paragraph, and that's a scary paragraph when you think about it. It is. You know, that was just one out of the entire thing. And he goes on, and they do make recommendations, which we'll hit in a few minutes. Uh, but, you know, if that doesn't give you pause <laughs> when talking about this, I'm not sure what would. An- another one that I that I saw in that uh, Washington Post article, which, which I thought was really great, was um, a quote from 
or I don't know if it's a quote, as a paraphrase from uh, Rachel Thomas, who's the one of the co-founders at Fast.ai, mm-hmm. which we all we all love for for many reasons, including the educational piece and the practical packaging and everything. So shout out to Fast.ai. But uh, she kind of said that disinformation campaign using deep fake videos probably would catch fire because of the reward structure of the modern web. So um, I think what she's getting at there is basically the the shock factor of a deep fake video is really what drives the reach of that video. And so these videos are kind of set up to be shocking in, in many cases. And so just that by itself um, lends to those kind of going viral, reaching bigger audiences versus kind of maybe more mundane but but true videos, right? So it's uh, it is a concern, and you know I know that uh, we've already talked about kind of the just the idea of these videos existing as as dangerous, but also I mean they they are already being used by malicious uh, malicious actors, like you were saying, in various places around the world. Um, and I, I think uh, I think, you know, the, the Russia piece also fit into the hearings that, that were this morning, right? They did. Uh, so they addressed. And, and so uh, I know that in politics, some people may disagree, but, you know, the American FBI has has stated uh, explicitly that Russia interfered with the election of in 2016. And so taking that as a, as a basis of fact for this, um, the it was also noted in that same testimony, uh, moving forward, I'd estimate Russia as an enduring purveyor of disinformation is and will continue to pursue the acquisition of synthetic media capabilities and employ the outputs against its adversaries around the world. Um, and basically, I, mean, that's, I think that's representative. This is me speaking out. That's representative of the fact that it's a weapon of information warfare at this point, uh, deepfakes, that, or it can be used in that way. Um, and that does, and it's not necessarily just Russia. It can be many, many uh, you know, nations that can uh, that can try to influence and sway uh, other countries, uh, other parts of society with that. And so these are the types of things that it's not just you and I talking about it. It's not just the AI community or the general population. It's certainly something that the defense industry and the military at large are having to consider. Uh, it's still relatively new. Uh, and it's something that, um, that really all countries are going to have to contend with going forward. Yep. So, uh, I guess maybe one last thing here when we're moving on from the dangers and maybe a quick point here that I know that you posed on our LinkedIn page. So if you aren't aware, our podcast has a couple ways for you to engage with us. Um, we'd love for you to engage on our Slack channel, which you can join uh, if you go to changelog.com community. We also have a LinkedIn page. I think it was posed on the LinkedIn page if there were any beneficial uses of deep fakes or good use good use cases for using this sort of technology to create fake somethings. Um, So we would love to hear from you if you have those ideas, but I know a a couple came up. Um, What what did you see there, Chris? Uh, So I know that, uh, and I hope I don't mess up his name, Konstantin Svetnov, I'm sorry, Konstantin, about uh, mispronouncing there. Uh, He is uh, in the Atlanta, he's part of the Atlanta deep learning meetup community as well, Um, but he is a senior solution architect with NVIDIA and, you know, really savvy guy about this. But he did point out uh, one of the things, he he talked about kind of what you said earlier about, you know, the technology itself is agnostic. It's not a bad technology. It's a it's a set of tools that can be used 
used, and we've we've talked about some of the uh, the joking things, uh, and obviously it can be used for bad as we've been addressing as well. But he pointed out that you know the forensic, you know, it, we can learn a lot when we do have bad actors doing that. The forensic evidence that we can then analyze and understand how people are doing that is beneficial. And so he's kind of saying there's there's something where you can uh, take something good after something bad has happened and improve. And then he finishes up. Uh, he says, and also deep fakes could create a whole new uh, genre of TV comedy. And there's that to be said, certainly. So maybe maybe there's some uh, some pretty fun things that could be done uh, lighthearted, uh, which I know isn't isn't the tone we've set here. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how people uh, use these technologies going forward. It's here. You know, everyone's going to have access to it at large. And so I would certainly love to see uh, that optimism uh, express itself in people's creativity. Yeah. And one, one thing that, you know, is um, is useful like this in terms of the kind of entertainment industry, there's obvious use cases where studios, movie studios have people's permission to create sort of these computer generated things like, you know, maybe someone can't dance a certain way or something, um, but that needs to be in a movie and they get that person's permission to kind of make that video of, of them dancing or, or whatever, whatever the situation is. I think there are um, you know, legitimate uses of that within entertainment, but also in addition to governments kind of weaponizing this sort of technology mm-hmm. uh, or or malicious actors kind of using it against, you know, their enemies. Um, I think there are probably uses of this technology that could be beneficial in kind of the the opposite way in terms of bringing human humanitarian or 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 help to people in in the developing world as well where the political situation is is hard i know that uh you know getting educational material to people in certain areas is really tough um, to certain language minorities as well, especially if those language minorities are also religious minorities. And so, you know, sometimes like in my mind, I'm, I'm aware of, you know, translators who might translate like educational material or something for those people. They probably don't want to have themselves on a video. So if that video was kind of created as an avatar or something like that, yeah. then, you know, a, a lot of that could be useful as well. So I think that putting all of the weight on the bad uses is not completely fair. Although I think putting a lot of the focus there is warranted because uh, this is a very serious topic. I, I agree with you. I'm really hoping to see some great use cases come forward where it's not just the uh, the doom and gloom thing going forward. So uh, I'll tell you what, if anybody wants to put my face, which is uh, out there on a dancing video or something, my seven-year-old daughter would love that. So I, I'm, I'm hoping somebody will post something like that uh, on Slack or in their LinkedIn community or something. Well, hello there, listeners of Practically I. How are you? This is Adam Stachowiak. If you haven't heard yet, we're launching a new show called Brain Science. It's a podcast for the curious. Are you curious? Because if so, we're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain? that can transform our lives. Learn more about the show and subscribe at changelog.com slash brain science. Until then, here's a preview of episode one, where we talk about the fundamentals of being human. We're also all designed to be in relationship. We are fundamentally hardwired to have social groups and and this sense of attachment. And because I'm sort of a, a geek when it comes to research, 
what researchers have found is that attachment, which that's what we label how we relate and connect with others, attachment is 100% learned, which means our genetics don't actually contribute to how we learn to stay in proximity with other people. And with that, that we all develop ways to manage the threat of the loss of a relationship. But nobody gets to opt out of going, I need to be in relationship with others. It's almost like we need to have that echo from another human being to let us know that we yeah. we're, we're there or we're alive or just some sort of feedback loop. I'm not really sure how to describe that. Well, it really is this sense of being with, right? Like I can't fight battles on my friends' behalves or on my kids' behalves, right? But the simple fact that I know of what's going on makes a difference because yeah. I would contend it's sort of like I help them hold that weight emotionally. And so that actually leads me into the third thing. And the third thing that I would say in regards to the fundamentals of being human is that we all struggle. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? Big time. And that, you know, we don't always get to pick the way in which we struggle, but we all struggle. Well, if you like what you hear, you should go to changelog.com slash brain science. The show is not out yet, so don't get too excited, but you can subscribe and be notified as soon as the show launches. Once again, changelog.com slash brain science. All right, so we've talked about, you know, what deep fakes are. We've talked about the dangers they pose and also maybe some benefits that they can offer. But maybe now let's uh, kind of move to talking about how people are thinking about protecting themselves or other people or societies against deep fakes or the disinformation that, that they can spread. Um, so I know one of those approaches that I've seen in the community to protect against deep fakes is kind of a strategy that OpenAI has taken with their GPT-2 model. So we, we have a podcast episode about that model and the technical details of it. If you're interested, definitely uh, take a listen to that episode. But the thing that they saw with GPT-2 was that it is capable of generating this sort of very realistic text and very long form text which obviously they saw as an opportunity to create fake news articles or fake content for social media and that sort of thing. And so they, they saw the danger with this and the, the approach that they took to kind of uh, prevent that was they just released the, the code for the model, not the, pre the full pre-trained model itself. They released kind of a limited version of the model. Um, and they didn't release the full data set that they used to train that model. So their, their hope, I think, was basically to try and slow down the malici malicious use of that model and kind of give researchers time to develop kind of detection methods or or um, methods that, that would help in some other way fight fake news and um, now that they know that GPT-2 is out there. So it's an interesting approach. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Chris. I don't know if it did. I guess my question would be how how much good did, it, did that approach do given um, I know just recently I saw that a, a student 
who had access to certain compute resources to TPUs. I, I don't I forget if he used the cloud or what, but he had access to some compute resources, which are not that uncommon. I think other people could get, get access to those. So and he was a student and he was able to use that code and uh, reproduce the full GPT-2 model. Um, and that kind of was uh, less than four months, so three to four months after OpenAI released the code and the paper and all of that. So it's not that much time between when they released the kind of partial release and when the full thing was public um, and the student, student released that. So uh, the question is, I, I don't know that three or four months really buys us much, but that's not to say that it wasn't a good approach or OpenAI didn't try, but I just wonder if that's enough. Yeah, I, it, it's a tough thing. I know when we when we did our GPT-2 episode uh, shortly after its uh, initial release there, and we, we talked about this in that episode and kind of debated that approach uh, from OpenAI in terms of the, you know, this release. And we contrasted that against, you know, kind of the norm in open source of kind of throw it out there and let the world dig in and see what your stuff is. And, and one of the things that we considered at the time was, was, you know, maybe this gave us a little bit of bumper, even though it wasn't purely in the spirit of open source uh, in that way. And I think in the time, one of the things I said then was I thought probably a couple of things that uh, it was probably good to give us a little bit of time just to absorb and, and realize the new world that we're in uh, with that kind of release. And as and I also said uh, that really it would happen anyway. You know, that now that people knew what was possible, it would be recreated sooner rather than later. And this student has done just that. They came in and did exactly uh, what I was predicting. And the reason is there's a lot of smart people in the world. And if just because one team does something and doesn't release it doesn't mean you know, everyone else now knows it's possible. And so you put smart people in the problem and, and they they know there's a solution then. And so they're going to get it. And I think uh, as, I, as I've had a, a little bit of time to analyze this, I think OpenAI's approach was uh, the responsible way to do it at this point. It wasn't too long. I mean, we saw that it's gotten out there anyway, but it gave us uh, time to, to absorb what they had achieved what was possible with that achievement and how we might think about, you know, malicious uses of it, which we started doing immediately. And then this kid came out and, and released this, the student. And so um, I think for significant impacting technology releases, this might be the way forward, at least in my opinion. Yeah, given that the time period, so there may be a delay. Hopefully organizations kind of approach things in a responsible way and give people notice when something like this is coming out and own up to the implications of it and kind of uh, expose those. But even then, like you say, uh, the, the full technology is going to be available and people are going to reproduce it. So in light of that, there's definitely people out there that are focusing on detecting fakes. Mm -hmm. um, so they're focusing on actual AI methods that would be able to detect or discriminate fake versus non-fake. So if you just go, um, so I really like the website paperswithcode.com. Yep. Um, if you haven't seen that, you, you should definitely check it out. Um, but if you just search for, uh, I just search for fake and detection, and then a bunch of papers come up, kind of recent papers on this topic. And I would say that this kind of detecting fake deep fakes or fake news or fake images, fake videos, 
um, however they phrase it in their papers. There's definitely some approaches out there that seem promising, but there's definitely a no one size fits all solution. So there's no, you know, this is how we're going to protect ourselves against deep fakes things. Um, there's some solutions out there for the, on the video side, there's, there's people looking at kind of the way people blink in videos actually. Um, and apparently that's hard to replicate in a, in a fake. Um, there's also kind of a person's kind of facial fingerprint and also like per frame inconsistencies in videos. Um, so there's people looking at, at those sorts of things to be able to tell like these, uh, these artifacts that would give away a deep fake. Um, on the tech side, there's people that are analyzing kind of the persuasive structure of uh, news articles or, or arguments and the stances that those articles take to kind of figure out if they're fake or not. So there's a whole variety of things that people are trying. And I, I certainly have only just mentioned a few. There's, there's a whole bunch out there. Um, we'll link some of those in our, in our show notes. But I think probably the best thing if you're interested in those sorts of techniques is to to search some some site like Papers with Code and and look at what people are doing. Um, one of the things that that I was struck by in reading that Washington Post article was was a quote by a uh, computer science professor at Berkeley and uh, Dr. Farid, and uh, he said, "We are outgunned." And the reason why he said that is the number of people working on video synthesis as opposed to the detector side is a hundred to one. In other words, there's a hundred people working on interesting deep fake technology and only one of the one corresponding person working on detecting deep fakes. And that's probably also due to kind of, in my opinion, the incentives that are built into the academic system when, and you know, the, the AI community, whereas if you come out with a, a deep fake technology or some video technology for generating videos, you're going to get a lot more attention than if you come out with a really great detection thing, right? That's true. Um, so, so I think the moral of that story is, you know, if you're out there and you want to work on something around this, maybe consider working on the the detection problem. We really, we really need people working on that. Yeah, you know, not only having to do with deep fakes, but having to do with things like poison data and other safety issues. We actually had an episode I was wanting to call out to our listeners. Uh, episode number 33 was called Staving Off Disaster Through AI Safety Research. Um, and that was one when I was uh, attending uh, Applied Machine Learning Days in Switzerland. And I know you organized the, the AI for Good track for that conference. That I met with, uh, and I'm 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 going to try to get his name right, uh, El Mahdi El Hamdi, and I apologize if I just screwed that up because I know he listens to the podcast. And it was a fascinating conversation that we had that was recorded and and put out where he kind of talked about different approaches to that, and he basically made that same point: is that the number of bad actors, uh, nefarious actors out there, far far outweighs the number of people that are trying to uh, be pro safety in this space. Uh, he being one of those people. So there's the kind of release of models side of things. There's the detection of deep fakes. Uh, there's probably a third category here, which really is assuming that deep fakes are going to exist. Um, that we're not going to be able to detect them all. So some are going to get through our best detection mechanisms. We should be able to uh, criminally prosecute people that are generating these things in a malicious manner. That's what that's the stance that some people are taking. So there's been bills introduced in the United States. I'm sure there's there's other governments wrestling th with this, but this is kind of probably what we're most familiar with is here in the U.S. Like uh, um, Senator from from Nebraska. 
you know, other other lawmakers from Virginia and California are considering legislation around these things, even uh, at a state level. So the New York State Assembly has introduced bills to kind of push back against uh, against this sort of technology. So I guess um, that's another approach that people are taking. I think there's still a lot of really, you know, interesting open questions there, like how how is this enforced? How, how would we enforce this while still kind of allowing, you know, legitimate entertainment uh, companies or companies that are maybe doing legitimate uh, work in these areas and, you know, helpful things in these areas? Um, how do we allow those people to operate and, and yet, you know, prevent this malicious usage of the technology? Um, so there's a lot of interesting, interesting questions there. You know, where do we draw the line of deep fake and not and malicious and not? And, um, you know, there's a whole range of things from, you know, jokes and satire to the really harmful, bad stuff, quote unquote. So where, where do we draw the line? There's, there's a lot of open questions there. Yeah, when I was watching the uh, the intelligence com- committee hearing that we've been alluding to in this episode uh, this morning, that was a big issue because a great deal of this involves you know First Amendment rights, uh, and and for those who are not uh, U.S. citizens, uh, the First Amendment uh, of our Bill of Rights, which is part of our Constitution, is the amendment that allows for free speech and free expression in the United States, and so that was there was quite a bit of kind of legal oriented back and forth much of and I'm not a lawyer so much of that went right over my head um and so you know I, I don't I won't speak to that directly but they really were talking about how do you handle this without violating first amendment protections so some good news is that this morning in the uh, House Intelligence Committee hearing that we've been talking about over uh, the course of this episode, uh, they they did in fact make some recommendations on how to contend with uh, deep fake issues, and uh, there were six explicit points that were called out, and I thought I'd just kind of not cover all the verbiage on each one, but just kind of the first sentence or so of each one, uh, which kind of gives you the the sense of it. The first was, Congress should implement legislation prohibiting U.S. officials, elected representatives, and agencies from creating and distributing false and manipulated content. Um, And as an addendum to that, they mentioned that the U.S. government's, you know, whatever kinds of statements they make should always be the truth. The official government statements and policies should always be based in truth. The second thing was that policymakers should work jointly with social media companies to develop standards for content accountability. The third was that the U.S. government should partner with the private sector to implement digital verification signatures uh, designating the date, time, and physical origination of content. Uh, The fourth one was that social media companies should enhance their labeling of synthetic content across platforms and work as an industry to codify how uh, and when manipulated or fake content should be appropriately marked. The fifth was that the U.S. government, from a national security perspective, should maintain intelligence on adversaries capable of deploying deepfake content or the proxies that they employ to conduct such disinformation. And the final one they noted was public awareness of deepfakes and its signatures will be greatly assisted in tamping down the attempts to subvert U.S. democracy and incite violence. So those were good. And and I think the uh, the Intelligence Committee heard that. There there was some debate about the legal issues uh, regarding First Amendment uh, concerns, but it was good, you know, to see them wrapping up with potential ways forward to mitigate the dangers that we've been talking about on this episode. I see a, a couple things in there. Um, 
I guess one thing is there, there's definitely an emphasis on social media companies, um, both to contribute to the discussion, but also to utilize their resources to help label synthetic content. So there's definitely a, a responsibility placed on social media companies. Um, it will be interesting definitely to see um, how social media companies receive that and the cooperation that they get. I'm not totally convinced it will be you know, exactly. So there's there's competing interests here always, right? Of course. Um, so, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, main, maintaining intelligence on, on adversaries capable of deploying deep fake content. I think that includes me. I don't want to give myself away, but, you know, I'm capable of deploying it. I guess I'm not an adversary of the U.S. government. At least I don't consider myself to be so. Um, but uh, it is interesting to me. I mean, that, that's like everyone who knows how to like clone a repo on GitHub and run that code. I don't know. Um, I guess probably what they're getting at is is uh, government entities and, and other things. That's what I think. But it seems yeah. like there's a there's a huge range of things. Uh, I guess I don't want the government maintaining intelligence on me since I'm capable of deploying those technologies, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think the intent of the recommendation was, was really uh, from the perspective of the United States, uh, foreign adversaries is what that was looking at. Makes sense. That was certainly the impression I came away from listening to the testimony. Yep. So I guess uh, maybe one way we could wrap up this discussion is to kind of give you some good learning resources and links on this subject. Uh, not so much on the learn how to make uh, deep fakes, because you probably also don't want to have uh, uh, the U.S. government maintaining intelligence on you, but uh, but maybe just kind of learning about deep fakes, the state of the art, and also, uh, you know, detection methods and other things. I think one one good link if you if you just go back one fully connected episode to when we we're talking about GANs and uh, reinforcement learning and transfer, certainly GANs and transfer learning come into play in, in this discussion in a, in a big way. Um, there's also a good over that good overview article that I mentioned from the Washington Post that we'll link that's not really technical, but does provide a, a good amount of links in it as well. And then there were a couple of uh, workshops that I found. Um, actually, right now, ICML is going on. Um, there's a uh, workshop there uh, that I'm assuming will post kind of uh, papers and maybe some results and discussions about uh, synthetic realities, deep learning for detecting audiovisual fakes. Uh, there's also a workshop that happened at Applied Machine Learning Days this year um, about fake news detection, and we'll link that. There's actually a GitHub repo um, that kind of goes through a tutorial and some ideas and slides about uh, fake news detection. So I think those would be good starting places. But um, yeah, I appreciated the, the discussion today, Chris. I think um, it was good to talk through some of these things. It was diff difficult in many ways. Um, I like to be generally positive. I, I hope that comes through in the podcast, but... I, do, I think we both do, actually. It's a pretty heavy topic. Yeah. yeah. I think we have a responsibility uh, to our listeners and in general just to be able to fairly represent things. And uh, obviously, a lot of the things that we talk about are just exciting and fun. And I think uh, I hope that we come off that way to our listeners. Uh, but there's occasionally some scary stuff in this field, and I think it's our responsibility to represent that as well. So I hope our listeners uh, feel a little bit more uh, attuned to this topic. And uh, sorry for the, the downer of an episode and uh, appreciate very much everybody sticking in with us through this. Um, it was it was a good talk, Daniel. Yep, definitely. We'll talk to you next time, Chris. Talk to you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.
All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically I. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend. Whatever you gotta do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email, keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.